Hello and happy Thanksgiving and thank you for joining me for another episode about real estate investing. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Exeter from Exeter 1031 Exchange Services. Bill is a very knowledgeable and experienced person in the 1031 Exchange world. He's been doing it for many, many years. I wanted to speak to Bill because I have been going through different questions I have on 1031 Exchange. I would say a bit more advanced questions or clarifications. And I use this opportunity to actually ask Bill those questions. So what do we cover in this uh, uh, episode and why you would want to join and you know continue listening? We talked about general what 1031 Exchange is. Um, we talked about international aspect of 1031 Exchange, the aspect of how to navigate the limit, the um, um, condition of identifying a property within 45 days uh, after you close on the selling properties, how to more accurately calculate your um, the amount in your exchange, and many other things that are more um, advanced or more kind of polishing beyond the general understanding of what an exchange is. We took the time to dive into those things, but you know what? Not too deep. So we have a clear answer, a more general understanding, what we need to do next and how you know, uh, uh, we can use the 1031 exchange to our benefit. We have had multiple exchanges done this year. And the one thing I love about simply do it when it comes to exchanges is that within a flip of a button, we are able to activate multiple realtors in multiple areas around the country and start looking for properties to meet and fit our investors exchange. Just recently, about a few days ago, we closed on a, on a 1031 exchange, two properties on, the ten, on one 1031 exchange. And the person, the investor who came to us, you know, was searching somewhere else. And when he came to us, he had only 20 days to find a property and to make sure it's, you know, it will fit into his consideration as an investor and meet the timeline of the exchange. And we were able to generate that uh, for him, a good property, good two properties for him. If you are having an exchange or if you're selling and you want to do an exchange, we can probably help you with that. If you're selling and you're not even sure about an exchange, what it is or how, how can this be benefit you, listen to this episode and let us know. I can share with you one other thing. Yesterday, I had a conversation with someone who's looking into selling their half a million dollar um, um, waterfront property in Utah. And this couple, one of the things that came, they came into the conversation with me, assuming they need to do an exchange. And out of the conversation, a 1031 exchange, um, it was... Um, probably revealed or discovered, and they still have to check into a few things um, that they may not need to do, they do not have to do an exchange. They may be able to work, to work around uh, for several reasons and not actually do an exchange. Just because we can do an exchange doesn't mean we need to do an exchange. And if there's a way for us not to do an exchange, it may be more beneficial primarily because of the time constraints especially nowadays. So thank you for listening. I hope you will benefit from this episode about 1031 Exchange and what you can do with it 
for your you know, benefit as real estate investors. Have a terrific holidays and thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining for another episode about different aspects of real estate investing. This is uh, Danny Bedor uh, speaking from Simply Do It. Um, unfortunately, we had a little bit of a hiccup, and that's something that comes with the territory where Zoom is not always uh, playing nice. So we were hoping to have this recording, this session recorded um, you know, via Zoom as well, but we're going to settle for audio only, although I'm definitely enjoying seeing Bill on the screen. So we just switched to another, uh, another um, technology, old school, calling, you know, calling it uh, a phone call. So Bill, thank you very much for joining me, and happy Thanksgiving. Um, Bill is an expert on 1031 Exchange, and I am seeing more and more people you know, that purchase with us or not, doing 1031 Exchange. Bill was a guest, you know, a guest speaker, uh, I would say three, four, maybe even five years ago at our group uh, in Irvine. And I thought I'd reach out again and ask him kind of to refresh our knowledge and, um, um, in, in knowledge and information about 1031 Exchange. And so we are going to discuss about 1031 Exchange. And uh, I hope we're, my goal, personal goal from this session is actually to go beyond what I call the basic stuff, right? Um, so Bill, why don't we uh, start with two things? One is why don't you introduce yourself to the audience so they know more about yourself and maybe kind of take, take a minute or two to run through general uh, understanding without diving into the, the, the different scenarios and uh, you know, cases and situation, what Tensile One Exchange is. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> for those who haven't worked with us before, um, we have a couple of core companies. One is Exeter 1031 Exchange Services. Uh, that acts as a qualified intermediary for 1031 exchange transactions. And we administer all types, so we cover all 50 states. Uh, we're one of the few uh, qualified intermediaries that would actually handle foreign property transactions. And then we also have Exeter Trust Company, which is a uh, licensed as a uh, non-depository trust company by the Wyoming Division of Banking. And that allows us to uh, serve as IRA custodian for self-directed IRAs, as a custodian for just general custody services, uh, specialty holding escrows, title holding trust, land trust, things like that. Uh, so almost everything we do has a, an emphasis on real estate. That's, that's our sweet spot is real estate-related transactions. Personally, I've been doing uh, 1031 exchanges and trust services now for 37 years. Um, never thought I would say that I've been doing this for 37 years, but here we are. <laughs> it's amazing how fast time flies. So that's kind of a quick overview on my, my professional career. And uh, Personally, my, my favorite hobby is scuba diving, so I like to uh, blow bubbles underwater. Um. Why don't we, uh, can, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, perfect. Why don't we talk about just in general, what a 1031 exchange is, maybe uh, if you even can, can, uh, can uh, talk about, you know, the, the general, what an exchange is, and maybe, uh, maybe even use like, a, like an example, a, you know, financial example. Uh, and, and again, uh, the reason I'm trying to simplify it at this phase is because I want to leave us more time for the more advanced, uh, or, uh, or 
uh, you know, uh, specific uh, cases and situations? Sure. Uh, well, we probably should take uh, kind of a simple example, which kind of helps walk through the whole process real quick. Uh, let's say somebody acquired property, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, and they decide it's a single family. It's now worth a million dollars. Maybe they've got six hundred thousand in debt, four hundred thousand in equity, and maybe they bought it, you know, years and years ago for like three hundred thousand. So they got a seven hundred thousand dollar gain. And they think, you know, now it's time to trade up. I'm ready for more. I want to sell my single family. I want to do maybe trade into a duplex or a fourplex or an eightplex. So, you know, I just want more, more units to rent out, more tenants, more cash flow, that type of uh, thing. Uh, hopefully they sit down with their accountant, and that's where they get the bad news. That you've got a $700,000 profit. You're going to pay a very large percentage of that, uh, probably about 30%, give or take, depending on what state you live in, uh, in taxes. Uh, so that's going to take, you know, about one-third of your profit, and it's very difficult to reinvest when you lose a third of your profit. So with that, you decide, okay, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. Uh, you sell your current property, and you reinvest, let's say, in a fourplex. You buy a fourplex that's worth equal or greater than the million dollars, so you're trading equal or up in value. You roll over, transfer over all your equity of 400000 and then you get a new loan for 600000 and you've reinvested. Or maybe you've bought more than a million dollars in value, so you've traded up in value, and you've just gotten more debt to finance the balance. So that's kind of the general gist of it. Bottom line is it allows the investor to sell the asset, reposition by reinvesting in another asset, keeping all of their equity in their pocket so that it doesn't get dispersed to the federal or state government, um, and that allows them to trade up in a larger asset because they've kept all their equity in their pocket. Okay. Perfect. Um, and maybe just to emphasize, if someone is not familiar with this mechanism, this is a, a, a legal IRS code that's called 1031, and that's why you know this is not a creative or, or, uh, or a mechanism. It's actually an acceptable, allowed, legal shelter, tax shelter, you know, uh, avenue. And it's for investment yes. properties, not primary residence, right? Absolutely. So for those who want to do their research, uh, it, in fact, if you have a hard time sleeping, this is a great way to do it. <laughs> Just read Section <laughs> 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code. That's where it comes to be. Um, and an interesting note, uh, we're now in November 2021. This is actually the 100th year anniversary of 1031 exchanges. It's November 2021. It's been around 100 years. Nice. Okay, good. Um, one of the main limitations and non-limitations or, uh, um, um, are the timeline that the 1031 exchange, I don't know if limitation is the right term, but uh, uh, which are uh, – you have 45 days to, re to ID the properties you are looking to purchase, property or properties. I know there are several ways how to go about it. And is it an additional 135 days to close afterwards? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's all driven by the day that your sale transaction closes. So if it closes today, then tomorrow is day number one, and you've got exactly 45 days to identify what you're going to acquire in a total or I should say an additional 135 days after the 45-day window to actually complete your 1031 exchange, and that's a total of 180 days. So I think your use of the word limitation is right on the money. It's, it's very limiting, very restrictive, uh, challenging, because uh, 45 days moves very quickly. Right. Okay. 
So let's talk about uh, you know this challenge for a second. Um, if someone you know is you know closing you know just closing today and the 45 days are starting to count tomorrow, that basically means I need to provide you. I'm the seller and the buyer here, and I need to provide you by January 15th, give or take, give or take one day. Um, a list of address or addresses I'm looking to buy and have, you know, the rest of the 135 days beyond that to close, right? Is that, that's it. Okay. What can exactly. someone yep, do? Exactly right. Okay. So what can someone do these days or not just these days or well, these days is just more challenging with inventory being so tight. Are there ways to, um, if I am challenged to, find the property or properties that I can close on within 45 days. Am I, let's say, am I doomed? Is it, you know, the exchange is dead if I don't, I'm unable to do it. You know, I can, by the time I find a property and maybe put it even under contract and go through the due diligence, last minute, you know, on day 44 out of the 45, it can something happen. I mean, it's real estate. Is it something that I am kind of, Screwed, or is there, are there any mechanisms to protect me in such situations? Uh, there's some strategies you could use, but, but first of all, yes, uh, if you can't identify anything during the 45-day window, or if you identify something during the 45 days and then can't acquire it for any reason, uh, then the exchange would fail, it becomes taxable, and that's a pretty painful process to go through. So it is set in stone um, that 45 days is exactly 45 days. There's no way to get an extension or anything like that. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. This is a tough market. It's a fast market. It, it's, uh, there's bidding wars and multiple offers, and um, it's definitely a seller's market. So to take advantage of that, on the sales side, you're the seller. You're in, a sell, you're in the driver's seat. So if you can get a buyer to agree to a long-term close, multiple uh, uh, options to extend the close of the transaction, anything like that, anything you could do so that you don't actually close, uh, then you've bought yourself some more time to go look for replacement property, negotiate, get it under contract, do your due diligence, things like that. Um, you know, sometimes the buyer says, yeah, I'll cooperate, but I need to get into the property today. So maybe you lease it to the buyer with an option to, to buy. Or there's just different ways you can lock it up but not close on it, and that buys you more time. Certainly on the other side of the coin, you're the buyer. So once you've sold and you're in the middle of your exchange, you're the buyer. Uh, but if you could go out before you close on the sale, find property you like, and negotiate, get it under contract, um, et cetera, and the further you can get that property along the, the closing process, the safer it is. Um, unfortunately, it's still a seller's market. You're now the buyer, so you're not in the driver's seat. But if you can get the seller to cooperate, give you a long-term close, options to extend, that might help you as well. Uh, so it's all about timing and just trying to manage both the closing of your sale and the closing of your purchase and see what you can do from a timing perspective. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's very good. I think those are really good points uh, on buying more time, especially on the, on, uh, as a seller. That will help me, especially when I have a buyer ready. I think that's really, really good. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, um, I heard in the past in the term uh, reverse 1031 exchange or maybe some other terms. Um, is, are there other mechanisms? Let's say I'm an investor anyway, and maybe I can go out and buy a property or properties right now, knowing that I'm going to sell something, right? Or maybe I can, in order to bridge that gap, I'm, 
going through buying first and kind of reversing the role. Am I, I don't know much about it beyond just, you know, very general. Are there such mechanisms that I can utilize, especially, you know, it's all related to the time we, we live in, in order to not, you know, miss the 45 days or miss my exchange and the penalty that I will suffer is quite significant. Absolutely. And um, the reverse exchange, it actually works really well in today's market because the reverse exchange allows the investor to go out, pick all the time they want, find the right property they want to buy, negotiate, do the due diligence, go under contract, etc. Um, and then you actually close on the purchase first. You actually close on your new replacement property first, and then you have 180 days to close on the sale of your relinquished property, the one you're trying to get rid of. The, um, the challenge is reverse exchanges are much more complicated. There's more moving parts. There's more costs involved. Um, a pure reverse exchange, which does not exist, but to, just to give you an example, a pure reverse exchange means the investor can go out, acquire the new property, take title to it, own both at the same time, and then sell their current property later. Um, the IRS doesn't permit that. So the IRS has come up with this parking arrangement where the, uh, the investor can go out, find the property, go under contract, but when it closes on the replacement property, the qualified intermediary actually has to acquire and hold, or what they call park legal title to the property. So we actually set up an LLC, we acquire title and hold title, and that buys them the fact that they've acquired the property, they know they've got it, it takes all the risk out of whether or not you can find replacement property, and then you have 180 days to sell your current property. So it really takes a lot of the risk out of the 1031 exchange. The biggest challenge is we're holding title to the property, so most lenders probably aren't willing to allow that. So more complexity is involved, but it certainly solves the problem. I see. So, so the biggest challenge of, the, of, the, of doing a reverse exchange is the fact that if I'm buying with a mortgage, then uh, the mortgage is not going to be under my name. It's, um, it's going to be a, a mortgage that is acceptable for, let's say, a commercial mortgage for an LLC, uh, at least temporarily. It's maybe not the long-term solution here, but maybe for six months or so, maybe a little bit longer, I will have to use uh, either cash, which makes it easier, or some temporary funding until I can complete the exchange and get the relinquish or the new property that I'm buying or properties under my name and get conventional financing. So do it exactly. tricky. Yep. It, it's very tricky, and, and you hit the nail right in the head, which is the, it's all about the financing. So, uh, you know, some investors are in a great position where they can do an all-cash purchase. Uh, that means the reverse exchange is just more complicated, but at least the lender component has been removed and it's very doable. Um, most people don't have cash laying around, so if there's financing involved, you're exactly right. Sometimes they have to do uh, temporary financing, like you mentioned. So it might be bridge financing, hard money, private money, uh, something along that line. It's always great to abuse the family and see if you can borrow money from the family. <laughs> but any, whatever source you can get uh, that would allow us to hold title to the property at least makes the reverse exchange feasible. Now, the LLC in this, in this scenario, I mean, who's the – Member, the manager of the LLC, is this you as the, the or you as being the intermediary, or is it me, the person who's doing the exchange? Uh, during the reverse exchange period, so that 180-day window, 
we would be the sole member and the sole manager of the LLC. We do lease it, uh, triple net lease it to the investor so they can operate it, manage it, collect the rents, pay the bills, whatever they have to do. But the legal title holder through the LLC would be us. And then no later than the 180th day, uh, the LLC is transferred to the taxpayer. So then they take full ownership of the property and they become the sole member, sole manager of that LLC. Okay. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, I think that's a, a, um, a good mechanism to, to consider. There's all, obviously challenges with that as well. Um, are there any other mechanisms I can deploy similarly to the, to the reverse that I can utilize legally to get around the 45 days in the traditional identification, in the traditional manner, not kind of screw up my, uh, my exchange? Uh, the only ways you can get around that really are just delaying the close of your sale transaction so you have more time to go out and find property. Once you're in the 45 days, there's no way to extend it uh, unless the, the only exception to that is if there's a natural disaster uh, and the President of the United States declares uh, a natural disaster area that would affect you or covers you, okay. then you might get a 120-day extension. But in most cases, gotcha. there's no way to get an extension of time. Okay. Um, when you calculate, and maybe you can use uh, some numbers, example, example, an exchange, let's say we have a, I don't know, million dollar selling price. Um, is this the properties that are, the property or properties I'm buying? I'm selling for a million dollar. Obviously, when I have a million dollar, let's just keep it simple. Let's say I have 50% mortgage, which is 500,000, and I have some sales expenses. Let's call the sales expenses here. I don't know, uh, $50,000, right? Just use it, you know. So that means I will be basically be netting 450, but I sold for a million, but my, you know, but the net selling price is 950. Am I, do I need to buy for a million? Do I need to buy for 950? The, uh, how would that, you know, what would be my calculation basis for the exchange? Excellent question. So it, it um, most people, and well, I should back up, this is where a lot of confusion comes into play because a lot of people will call three or four people and get three or four different answers. Um, and a lot of times people will tell them, you sold for a million, you have to buy for a million or greater because that's the easier way to describe it. Uh, you have to trade equal or up in value. But for those investors who want to get as close as possible and not really trade up in value, then it's exactly what you indicated. It's really your net sale price. So you can take the million-dollar sale price, you can subtract not everything, but some of your routine selling expenses, like your broker's commission, title and escrow, documentary transfer tax, closing attorney's fees, things like that. And that's going to get you to your net sale price, which in your example will be about 950 So 950 is really the magic number. That's what you have to reinvest. And whether you buy you know, one or two or three or whatever properties, as long as the total of what you acquire is equal or greater than that 950 then you've reinvested everything. Okay. So um, let's take another example, and uh, we can use the same numbers. Let's say I am selling for a million, but I'm netting 950 so I need to kind of buy something for 950 or up or, or above. But let's say I have $50,000 in passive losses that I've accumulated over the years. And if I would just take the money and go home, let's say my tax, you know, my tax, you know, my, uh, the, the due taxes would be $75,000 on this transaction. Can I 
combine some passive losses into the exchange in a way that it will lower it. And I want to basically, I, I want it's an, a really good opportunity to use passive losses that I'm that have been sitting around. Is there a way to kind of throw them in and maybe lower the 950 to 900 or something along those lines? Absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of people do things like that strategically on purpose. Um, so one of the things you could do is sit down with your accountant and say, okay, tell me exactly what my suspended passive activity losses are, what's, what's hanging out there in suspense, if you will, and how much can I trade down by in the 1031 exchange so that I would offset the gain with the passive activity losses uh, so that I don't trigger any actual taxable event, but I can use up those suspended passive activity losses. Uh, the same would go for other types of net operating loss carry forwards uh, and things like that. So you really have to look at the bigger picture, and you may not need to do a complete 100% tax deferred exchange. You might want to do a partial exchange on purpose, just like you indicated, to absorb some of those other net operating losses or suspended passive activity okay. losses. That's excellent. That's excellent. I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't sure, and I love hearing this. This is great. Um, how about a similar situation, maybe even on a, on a greater value, on a property that was my primary residence um, some, I don't know, uh, three years ago, and it's been a rental for the past year and a half or so, so and I still have that 250, 500 kind of benefit, but it's a rental for the past year plus. Is this something that in a similar manner could also play into this? Uh, um, if I have more than 500,000, obviously, you know, uh, um, need to even use that. Maybe I don't. Yes, absolutely. In fact, there's a specific IRS ruling on that. So it's one of my favorite tax planning strategies because in, that, in your example, you've uh, moved out of the house, you've stopped using it as your primary residence, and now you've rented it for a year and a half. So you can still say that I've lived in the house for two out of the last five years. So you still qualify for that $500,000 tax-free exclusion. And as you pointed out, if the gain is over $500,000, because you've rented it for a year and a half now, you can show that you did intend to convert to rental activity. So now you qualify for a 1031 exchange as well. So you'll still get the 500,000 tax-free. You don't have to reinvest the 500,000. You can do whatever you want to do with it. Uh, and then you could do a 1031 exchange and reinvest everything else to defer any taxable gain that's above 500000 Okay. This is good. This is good. I love it. Um, I see a lot of those things kind of popping up on my radar, so this is really helping uh, address those, uh, those questions. Um, how about um, a situation where I have two partners, they own the property, and now they want to sell in 1031 exchange, can they use this opportunity to split, the, you know, divide between them the, you know, their uh, portfolio, so to speak, which is up until now one property, and each go their own way with the, uh, with the, with the proportional of the exchange? Uh, the answer is, it's my favorite answer, actually. It depends. <laughs> um, <laughs> If they hold the property as individuals, as tenants in common, as joint tenancy, something like that, then yes, they can absolutely sell, they can go separate directions, they could each 1031 exchange, or one could 1031 exchange, one could cash out and pay the tax, et cetera. Um, if they own it inside of an entity, so maybe it's an LLC that's treated as a partnership for tax purposes, maybe it's a general partnership or a limited partnership, 
Then it gets more complicated because they really don't own real estate. They own a partnership interest, and the entity actually owns the real estate. Uh, so in that case, there are ways to address the issue, but it takes proactive tax planning to kind of figure out what the exit strategy is. Uh, do they both want to stay together? Do they want to go separate directions? And then how can we address the issue? So the answer is yes, it can be done. It just takes some planning if there's a, a formal partnership involved. Okay. So LLC situation is doable, but just a little bit more complex to navigate, so to speak, or plan to do it you know, in the correct way. Exactly. I mean, yep. They the just air. have to remember okay. that uh, they don't own the real estate. The LLC does. The LLC sells mm -hmm. the real estate. Uh, if they both stay together, then it's easy. The LLC does the exchange, reinvests. It's it's nice and easy. But right. in a lot of cases, when an LLC sells real estate, they don't want to stay together for different uh, strategic right. reasons. So then it just creates complexities. Okay. Um, when we have when we're selling a property, we have. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, probably three types of taxes due. Federal, state, and I think there's a different calculation for depreciation. Assuming, I have, or maybe there's more, the 1031 exchange is on a federal level, it tackles the, you know, it is on a, on a state level or not, and how about it, is the depreciation part of it, yes or no? And maybe there's another, you know, tax bucket that I didn't count for, accounted for. Like a fourth one or something sure. like that. Now, definitely at the federal level, it's a federal tax code. Um, 49 out of the 50 states follow the federal tax code. Uh, the only state that does not follow the 1031 exchange is uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, they do have language in their code that says you can defer the tax if it qualifies under generally accepted accounting principles. In reality, it's really not going to happen. Uh, there is litigation right now trying to challenge that, but right now only 49 states actually observe the 1031 exchange. Um, so having said that, at the federal level, the taxes are your, your depreciation recapture. All the depreciation that you've taken over the years gets added back and taxed. Right now that's usually a 25% flat tax rate. There are exceptions, so always talk to your accountant to make sure you, you know exactly what it is. You've got your capital gain tax rate, so that's your growth in value, your profit, if you will. Uh, the, it's, the, the brackets today are 0, 15%, and 20%. Generally, when you sell real estate, you're not going to be in the 15% bracket. Uh, it does happen sometimes, but generally, you're going to be at least 15%, and if it pushes you into the higher tax bracket, it's going to be 20%. Then you have what people call the, is the Medicare surcharge, uh, people call it the, uh, you know, uh, also the Obamacare tax, and that's the 3.8% uh, tax on any gain of dividends, interest, or, or capital gain in excess of a certain amount. So you've got those three at the federal level. And then at the state level, it depends on the state. Um, you know, some states have no capital gain taxes, some do. Uh, so it just depends on how the state tax will, will take that into consideration. Okay, so in most cases, I, can de I, I should be able to defer federal taxes, depreciation dues, and state taxes. Absolutely, yep. Okay. Good. Even in Pennsylvania, okay. if you own rental property in Pennsylvania, you can still defer the federal taxes. You're just going to pay the state taxes. And I think, as I recall, Pennsylvania's state tax rate is like 3 or 4%, so it's not a horrible situation if you're in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, the, now, how about international properties? So I think there's two scenarios that I can imagine in my world 
One is someone is selling a property, let's say, in Paris and wants to buy in the, uh, in the U.S. And let's just say this person is maybe a U.S. citizen owning a property over there, bringing the money in. Uh, not that, you know, it's a, it's a French person, maybe that's completely uh, uh, French law. Uh, and the second one is I am here, again, I am French, and I want to exchange into a property in Paris. Um, is this something that the, under the, again, you being a U.S. person, uh, can I get any benefits from that uh, uh, scenario? Uh, it depends. The, um, and it's a great question because a lot of the stuff you read on the Internet out there and in, in brochures tell the investor you cannot do a foreign property transaction. And it's misleading. It, what they really are trying to say is you can't sell a foreign property and then exchange into a U.S. property or you can't sell a U.S. property and exchange into a foreign property. It's not considered like kind. Um, but you can sell a foreign property and then exchange into another foreign property. So the real issue is, number one, if the sale of that foreign asset triggers a U.S. taxable gain, then you could look at doing a 1031 exchange into other foreign property. You're still, of course, going to pay any taxes due in the foreign countries, uh, but you can defer the gain triggered in the U.S. So the, your accountant really needs to look at the numbers, crunch the numbers, find out what the net taxable gain is in the U.S., and then decide whether a 1031 exchange is appropriate. But it does have to be foreign property for other foreign property. Okay. Um, okay, so that's, that's also something I didn't, I didn't realize, and I'm, I'm glad to hear. So I am a U.S. person, and I can do an exchange of an, an asset outside of the U.S. border as long as it's alike, so to speak, right? And I cannot use that to bring it in, or I cannot use from here to bring it out. Okay, that's, that's, exactly. that's good. Um, okay. Um, I know we, have, uh, we don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of time left, and I, I really appreciate your, your, your answers are like straight to the point and you know, kind of exactly what I was hoping to, to get from this session. Um, if I am about to do an exchange, should my first call be to you to kind of start trying to, to play out the scenario by the numbers, or should I start with my CPA or tax you know, a consult, you know, consultant and then when I know my tax burden, come to you and say, here's what's going on. Let me, can you, you know, uh, uh, help me out with uh, facilitating it? Um, in, in reality, probably both, because we can start talking about strategies and the transaction and see if there's any issues to be worried about. But your tax advisor is by far the most important to start off with. So if you... If you have to pick one of the two, start with your tax advisor first. Find out exactly what your tax consequences are. Uh, as you pointed out, find out if there's suspended passive activity losses or there's net operating losses, something like that that could help uh, offset some of the gain. Uh, in some cases, you may have enough other things, other losses, other suspended passive expenses, et cetera, on your tax return that you may not have to do a 1031 exchange. So it's always better to know exactly what your tax consequences are going to be. And then from there, you know if you have to do a 1031 exchange and how much you have to reinvest. Got it. Okay. Um, Bill, in, in the time we have left, I wanted to, to, I wanted to, to kind of hear from you what are the common or typical mistakes you see people are doing in terms of the exchange? And maybe we can help them avoid it. For example, one thing that uh, I don't know if you encounter or not, but I always personally 
I'm a little bit skeptic, not skeptic, but hesitant when I talk to the tax advisor, if they really know 1031 exchange, I mean, beyond general knowledge, 45 days, 135, okay, we can do it. Like the nitty-gritty of the things that even we talked here, um, are there, can you give us a few examples of mistakes that you've seen or a few things that you see that are maybe common practice and maybe we can help our listeners to kind of, you know, start in the right, you know, right page or the right way or to avoid those things? Sure, absolutely. Um, and kind of start with the tax advisor. I think one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is this world has become more of a do-it-yourself kind of world, and they don't want to bring in their attorney or their tax advisor or other advisors. Uh, and obviously, you know, I understand they're trying to save money, et cetera, but that usually does them a disservice. Uh, they don't know all of the facts. So one of the biggest mistakes is they will move forward with the transaction without knowing what their actual tax consequences are, things like that. Uh, when you get, actually get into the 1031 exchange, some of the more common mistakes are that they don't track their 45-day window, uh, they fail to identify in time, and then the exchange fails, it becomes taxable. Um, they don't review their you know, estimated settlement statement with their tax advisor beforehand. There's closing costs on there that are, are considered non-permissible. And if you pay them with exchange funds, it'll trigger a small amount of taxable gain. Um, and that can be prevented if you talk to your tax advisor beforehand. So it's usually things like that where it's the identification process, knowing the tax consequences, um, making sure the identification is made within the time frames. Th those are by far probably the biggest ones. And then the last one is making sure you close within that 180-day window. Uh, so, again, it just you have to stay on top of your exchange. The qualified intermediary does the, the administration of the transaction, but it's the taxpayer, it's the investor's responsibility to really track the deadline and make sure they meet all the deadlines. Gotcha. So if I am someone who is about to sell a property, maybe the, the best uh, course of action would be once I got everything sorted out in terms of listing it for sale, and it's out there maybe uploaded to the MLS last night and things are quiet down. Obviously, I don't know when I'm going to sell it. Maybe once I have it listed, start reaching out and line up the 1031 Exchange uh, expert like yourself to reach out and start, you know, kind of putting plan together and at the same time reach out to the tax advisor and, and, and make sure I'm putting the right numbers or strategy together in order to be ready because basically I have these 30, 40, 60 days from listing or, or more until I actually close on the property I'm selling to prep and when it closes, the, cl the clock starts ticking. And 45 days may seem enough, but it's actually a very short period of time for real estate um, for in the real estate world, especially nowadays. Absolutely. Yep. That's very true. Those deadlines move very, very quickly. Uh, and you hit the nail right in the head, too. A lot of people forget. They think about 45 days, but you've also got the length of time you're going through the closing process. So if you've got a 30, 45, 60-day closing period, and then you have 45 days after that, you've got two to three months to, to look for replacement right. property and tie it up. But it's all about timing. Okay. Um, okay, so, so that, that makes perfect sense. So since we are um, on, a, on an audio and they cannot see you and all the uh, – 
you know, the, the information that I am watching, you know, uh, uh, on the Zoom that is still open. Um, can you tell us where are you located? What's the best way to find, you know, to reach out to you uh, or get more information about uh, your services? Sure. It's probably better that it's just audio because I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> it's safer that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have offices throughout the country, so it depends on where they're located. Uh, the national corporate headquarters is in San Diego. That's where all the companies are headquartered. Uh, we do have regional offices, so our trust company is actually – uh, licensed, regulated, and audited by the Wyoming Division of Banking. It's headquartered in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, we have a regional office as well in Chicago. Uh, so a lot of our back office, our, our trust operations, uh, some of our business development are as out of the Chicago office. We have a number, a number of other uh, small satellite offices. Most of those are uh, business development, marketing, or back office uh, type work. Okay. Okay. So you're you're uh, in. Uh um, reaching out, what would be a good number to, to uh, get a hold of you or the company or the website? Sure. Our uh, website is exeter1031.com. That's E-X-E-T-E-R 1031.com. Or also exeterco, E-X-E-T-E-R-C-O.com. Uh, the number you can reach me at is the headquarters number here in San Diego. That's area code 619 239 3091. Again, that's 619-239-3091. And just ask for Bill. I'm the only Bill in the company, so it makes it easy to track me down. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Uh, We'll do that, and I will include the the info on our uh, um, on the in the comments uh, subject uh, section as well. Um, Bill, I want to thank you very much for taking the time for providing uh, simple and you know straightforward answers. I have. You know, learned a lot, uh, the things that were always going in my mind. You helped me clarify them, so I appreciate it on a personal level. Um, and I'm sure we'll do something like this, uh, you know, in the future as well. So thank you very much, and uh, have a terrific day. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.